Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday may 7th 2010 this week episode 166 comes to you from studio b in beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the intrepid environmental Annie Ann Koalecki at Good the controls. Good afternoon. Good day, Ann. My co-host, the Z-Man, got stuck in court, unfortunately, this week. He uh, was doing some expert witness testimony and things ran over. He may get a chance to call in, but we'll see. We also have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, who will be joining us uh, at halftime and for the roundup, if not, long, if not for more. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got authors... And indoor environmental professionals Bob Brandis, Dr. Brandis, and Gail Brandis. Um, they are going to talk about their latest book, International Indoor Air Quality Standards for Over 2,000 Chemicals and Biological Substances. We'll also, of course, have our halftime with Dr. Wow, and then we'll do the roundup. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. I encourage people to check it out. Cliff does a great job on the blog, captures some of the new information that we pick up every week. Before we get started, though, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to contact the show, most everybody knows now how to get a hold of us. Uh, you can download the show on the iaqradio.com website. You can also pick us up by following the link that says go to the show or get the show uh, archives from iTunes or on our website after the show. Don't forget, we also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me and request a quiz. My email is joe.com. 
hughes at iaqtraining.com and our email addresses are both on the web page we love hearing from listeners with uh, suggestions and comments last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com let's do today's microband trivia question Congratulations to Andy Krasowski of Comcast Metal Products Company for correctly answering last week's microband trivia question. James Hoban was the architect of the White House. You can win a cool prize by competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Just submit your answer to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com, or you can text it in right here online if you know it when we do it here in just a moment. For today's trivia question for Friday, May 7th, 2010, in 1979, an accidental leak from a laboratory in the former USSR is believed to have been the cause of hundreds of civilian deaths. Name the substance that was leaked. Okay, Annie, uh, let's uh, get started with our little introduction today for Dr. Bob and his lovely wife, Gail. Bob Brandis is the president of Occupational and Environmental Health Consulting Services located in Hinsdale, Illinois. Dr. Bob has a Ph.D. in environmental safety and health, a master's in public health, and dual undergraduate degrees in thermomechanical engineering and environmental engineering. He is a registered professional engineer, a certified industrial hygienist, a certified safety professional, and a certified microbial remediator. He also has over 30 years of experience in the safety and environmental field and worked as a corporate safety manager for a major healthcare corporation for over 15 years. And he has served as president of his own environmental consulting firm since 1984. Gail Brandis is director of training services for occupational and environmental health consulting services in Hinsdale, Illinois. And by the way, they also have an office in Las Vegas now. Gail has a master's degree in industrial safety management from Northern Illinois University and a B.S. in secondary science education from the University of Delaware. She's a certified safety professional, a certified indoor environmental consultant, and an Illinois state licensed asbestos inspector and management planner. She's been involved in safety and health consulting for industries and institutions for over 25 years now and is responsible for developing and conducting safety training sessions for clients in companies in both English and Spanish on a wide variety of topics. She's been teaching EPA accredited safety training classes regularly at Chicago area colleges and universities for nearly 20 years. Bob and Gail are co-authors of four books now, Worldwide Exposure Standards for Mold and Bacteria. I believe that should be ninth edition now. Double check that real quick. Uh, let me. I think it's the eighth edition or ninth. We'll check with them. Post-remediation and testing and verification for mold and bacteria. Now in its third edition. 
global occupational exposure limits for over 6,000 specific chemicals. And, of course, the one we're going to talk about today, international indoor air quality standards for over 2,000 chemicals and biological substances. I believe we have some intro music for the Brandes. Bob and Gail, do we have you on the line? Hey, Joe. Good day, Bob and Gail. Do we have you, too? Hi, Joe. Hi. Welcome back to IAQ Radio. I checked it. It's almost one year, uh, actually a little less, I think a week less than one year since you were last here. And uh, we also had you actually early on, probably almost uh two and a half years ago now, and we really appreciate you coming back to join us and talk about your latest book here. Um, a lot's happened since your last appearance here, and, and you've made a couple revisions, and I don't know whether I slipped or not. Gail, can you help me out? What what edition are we on now with uh, post-remediation verification, uh, testing and verification for mold and bacteria? That is in the third edition right That's now. the third edition. Okay. I don't know why I have eighth on this paper. I'll fix that. No. That's the third. Well, well the, first, the first book, uh, Worldwide Exposure Standards, is in this eighth edition. Ah, okay. And there I, we go. Worldwide Exposure Standards for Mold and Bacteria, eighth edition. That's correct. You guys have been really busy, and uh, Global Occupational Exposure Limits for over 6,000 specific chemicals. When did that come out? Uh, that was first published in 2005. 2005. And, and is that still the s same edition, or have you got a second one on that no. one? Okay. We're second. we're second edition on that. Oh, you are? Okay. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more today about the uh, the most recent, which I've I've spent quite a bit of time here this week um, going through and, and, and got to read most of it. And it's I, first, I just want to say it's, it's really good reading and tremendous amount of information has been gathered in one place here and and you really must have uh worked long and hard at this what you know what has um made you you know what drives you bob to continue working this much researching and publishing indoor air quality books well the reality is i'm about a year and a half from retirement and I don't want to see all of the knowledge that I've gained over the past 40 years be lost. One of the things that these books have all shown is we knew this stuff and we forgot it. And I don't want that to happen again. And so we've decided to, to write these books. And it's many, many years and thousands of hours worth of effort, but at least it's now all in one group, in one publication. So if you want the history, if you want to know what we forgot, you now have a, a source for that. Great. And and I would highly recommend uh, people get it for their library. This last one really kind of blew me away. I mean, the, the other ones were really good. I enjoyed those. I still have copies of them. But there's a lot of great information in here. Where, where do you get this research? Where do you do this research at? Well, my uh, penchant into old books goes all the way back to grad school 
when I was doing my thesis on air pollution in London in the 17th century. And I had the opportunity to go to a, a very special historic library in Chicago. They're known as Newberry Library. And they have ancient books there. And, and I got to look at and handle with gloves books from the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 17th century as part of the research. So I, I know these books exist, and you have to have either special access or know how to get to them to find this historical information. But the, the real key to it is a lot of this is available in the EU. It's part of the, the college training that you can take over there. So by having contacts over there, that helps to open doorways to finding this historic information that was all researched over there. So you get a lot of, I, I imagine you have a good deal of um, interaction with other researchers around the world, and they help you figure out where some of this information is? Yes. Okay. Great. Great. One interesting little anecdote is uh, for the third book, Bob had all of these exposure standards in Russian. So he learned Russian. <laughs> so he could translate these 3,500 exposure standards. Wow. And then he was emailing a fellow in China who worked for the health department there. And he had all of the Chinese bacteria standards and the like that he wanted to trade Bob for the translated stuff of Russian. Wow. So they were able to tran uh, to barter the information back and forth. So that was kind of interesting. That is. And, and later in this interview, I, I really want to uh, bring up the MAKs from Russia. And I don't hit me with the acronym, please, there, Annie. I, I don't remember what it stands for, but <laughs> we will check on that. I was really surprised to see um, how many there were. It was, it was fascinating. How do you, um, you know, this old research done in the, even in the late 1800s, Bob, I think you kind of answered this earlier, but I just want to make sure I heard you right. Were they right back then? Did they have a pretty good handle on indoor air quality issues, at least with respect to the, the ones that existed then? Obviously, we didn't have all the different chemicals um, you know, being put into buildings then that we have now, but with the basics, it seems like they had it pretty well. You are correct, Joe. The, the reality is the standards that they developed in the late 1800s are essentially the same standards we have today for both ventilation and carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. And even some of the early bacterial and mold standards are still applicable today. Uh, you know, their scientific methods used back then were certainly not as tiny and small and efficient as we have today, but these guys were good scientists. They were, they were very uh, detailed in their work, and they replicated it again and again and again and produced very, very good results. Uh, and we just forgot all that stuff. That's a shame. We're, we're, you know, I, I think the fact that we, we forgot it and we point that out, that, look, we knew this 150 years ago, and these guys were right on. Their, their science was good, and, and we need to pay attention to history because we're repeating it, and, and unfortunately, at the same time, we're making many people ill. And you know, it was one thing 150 years ago when the population was a, a minute fraction of what we have today, and you may have affected 100,000 or 10,000 people. Today, you affect millions. So it 
just so much more important today to get this stuff right and pay attention to what we know. Absolutely. We had, I don't know if you know, we last month we had what we called Pioneer Month, and we had, uh, you know, some of the old-timers from uh, the indoor air quality industry. We had Hal Levin on. We had uh, Greg Orndorff Sr. from the disaster restoration world. Um, and we, we brought in people who we felt, you know, had this historical background from doing things in the last 50 years, basically, most of them. And we wanted to make sure that our listeners, um, you know, got that information, and we appreciate doing the same here with you. I love the history. I find the first chapter of the book really interesting, and and the first incident you talk about with respect to indoor air quality was the Black Hole of Calcutta. It was one of the first well-documented and publicized IAQ incidents. Can you tell us a little bit about that incident and, and maybe how you found out about that? Well, the, the black hole of Calcutta is, is a term that, uh, you know, a lot of us grew up, we heard it, and, and really no one ever knew what it was. But I'm the type of person that goes, well, what does this mean? So many years ago, I, in, in part of my, again, research, um, I looked into what this was all about and what it involved. And uh, it was an indoor air quality issue. And even though it was politicized as part of the British war, the reality was that it was highly studied. Um, there were numerous models made at the turn of the century of what happened and why the the men died of, of carbon monoxide and lack, uh, carbon dioxide and lack of oxygen. And that science was actually used later in litigation in early indoor air quality cases. And we cite uh, in the book when they were looking at the Holland Tunnel uh, that they did reference uh, the black hole of Calcutta a couple hundred years prior as just additional support of uh, indoor air quality and need for uh, ventilation. Can you recap the incident? Okay, so what happened in the black hole of Calcutta is a number of British uh, soldiers were captured um, as prisoners of war. Uh, there was 132 of them, and they were put into basically a 12 by 12 cell with a door that only had about a one square foot opening. And the next morning, uh, out of the 132 people, only two of them were alive. And you know, they they basically suffocated for a lack of oxygen as well as there was heat issues and and other odor problems. But the impact of that was a, a war, a challenge of war to go to India and conquer it. The, the irony was this was a standard practice of prisoners of war. You got rid of them by putting into an unventilated cell or virtually non-ventilated cell, and a lot of them die off. So even though it was used as a big uh, rallying cry, this particular practice was not uncommon. Uh, and I think we, we go into that uh, into our book talking about how the British handled the American prisoners of war during the Revolutionary War, and there were some 14,000 of them housed in poorly ventilated British ships in Boston Harbor, and over a two-year period, some 12,000 American prisoners of war uh, suffocated and died of disease on these poorly ventilated ships. So. Even though Britain made a big deal out of the Black Hole of Calcutta and their soldiers dying, they turned around with, in virtually the same time period 
did the same thing with American prisoners of war. So it was a common practice. Okay. Bob, and I just got a, I'm getting mixed feelings here on how in the volume, if you can pick it up just a little bit, that may help. Um, Gail, you sound good uh, volume-wise. Bob, maybe we could pick it up a little bit. Many of the early IAQ studies um, that you, you discuss involve carbonic acid, and I want to make sure our listeners know, first of all, what is carbonic acid and why was it so commonly measured even during the 18, 1800s? And also, how the heck did they measure it back then? Well, you have to go back and understand that back in the 1800s, indoor air quality was assessed using what are historically called wet chemistry methods. And, and basically, if you take air, which contains carbon dioxide, and you bubble it through water, the carbon dioxide will dissolve in the water and form carbonic acid, and when it does, you can titrate the water and measure the carbon dioxide content in the water. So when they talk about carbonic acid, they're really saying, what's the dissolved acid content in the water from the carbon dioxide that was bubbled through it? I see. Okay. And, so, and that was measured using wet chemistry. Interesting. Now, you also mentioned a gentleman by the name of Max Joseph von Pentenkoffer, what was his contribution to the indoor air quality world? Um, um, Max von Pentenkoffer is actually a fairly significant uh, indoor air quality and public health researcher uh, in Germany from the, again, late uh, 1800s. And, and I, I find his history and his research and his papers just absolutely fascinating to read. And what happened with, with Max and what makes him unique within the indoor air quality industry is when gas lighting was first um, developed and spread throughout Germany, there was a, a baron who put gas lighting into his castle, and subsequent to that, he didn't feel real good. So Max uh, Pettenkoffer was one of the public health experts within Germany at that time, and he was hired by the Baron to figure out what was going on in his castle and why he was feeling ill. And one of the things the, that Max tested for was carbon dioxide concentrations as a result of the gas flames burning to produce light within the castle and measured significant concentrations. But what's so unique about what Max did is his research and the reported symptomatology by the Baron was correlated, and he eventually produced the same carbon dioxide standard of 1,000 parts per million that we recommend today. So here's a guy 160-odd years ago who did some good research and came up with the same carbon dioxide standard we have today, and he is essentially the first person to set an indoor air quality standard. So he's a pretty significant historical figure. That's what I pick. I, I picked that up, and that's why I wanted to ask you about that. And I also noticed you you even have a quote from Ben Franklin. And I don't want any of the 
uh, female listeners to take offense here. This is not my quote. This is Ben. A smoky <laughs> fireplace and a nagging wife are two of the greatest ills in life. Um, there are some, I know, so bigoted to the fancy of a large, noble opening that rather than change it, they would submit to have damaged furniture, sore eyes, and skin almost smoked to bacon. Uh, I assume that noble opening was in fireplaces, and um, I also think that we could learn from that with current day. Uh, maybe there's a comparison you could make with current day modern laboratory furniture that may have the same problems. Yes, Benjamin Franklin was um, a lot more than just a statesman, and two of his um, historic letters that, that uh, we have possession and, and were written to various people around the world. One of them deals with lead poisoning, and this one here in particular deals with uh, indoor air quality. And what he's talking about is, is uh, back in the 1700s, uh, you had a fireplace in your home, and the hearth was very large, so you could have a kettle to cook food in it. You could have a spit in there to cook game in it. And, of course, at the same time, you would have a large fire to heat the home. The problem was that in order to draft that large of a hearth to prevent smoke from entering the home, you would have had to have a huge chimney, and the airflow within the home would have been intolerable. So Franklin, realizing that in order to ventilate a, prop, a fireplace properly to stop smoke from entering the home, you had to reduce the size of the hearth opening. However, if you did that, you couldn't cook your food. <laughs> so being the pragmatic man that he was, he developed the Franklin stove. So you could cook your food in a properly ventilated stove, shrink up the opening to your fireplace to prevent the smoke from entering your home, and basically solve an indoor air quality problem. So he was one of the first indoor air quality engineers and ventilation engineers as well as, uh, as a stove inventor to help with this issue. Yeah, I've noticed that um, I, I recently did some work with the National Energy Management Institute on, on chemical fume hoods, and, and that that quote made me think of a few styles of chemical fume hood that um, I know don't test very well using uh, the ASHRAE standard for, for testing. I think it's ASHRAE 110 for testing these chemical fume hoods. The, the, the opening's just too big in many cases. Um, so that, that was an interesting quote for me. I enjoyed that. Also in the early, now there was one in the, this is kind of a, a question for you, Bob, because, you know, obviously these guys didn't all get it right. Um, in the early IAQ section, there's an air purity standard for mold and bacteria from 1887, and it was that you should have less than 19,355 total bacteria. Uh, with a maximum mold level of 645 colony-forming units per cubic meter. Um, most of the current standards I see in, in your books are around 500 CFU per cubic meter, I believe, for the bacteria, and, and probably pretty similar for, uh, for the mold as well. What is the normal range or levels of bacteria in, in schools and classrooms today? Well, there, there's a, a number of, of issues you're bringing up there, Joe. Okay. Uh, um, first of all, the work done by Haldane and L in the late 1800s that proposed that particular bacteria standard 
dealt with housing in England at basically the turn of the century and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And at that time, there was no, no heating systems, there was no ventilation of homes, there was no sanitation. Uh, in many cases, most of the homes did not have plumbing, and you, people did not bathe regularly, they didn't change their clothes regularly. So when Haldane went out and, and did these microbial samples of public housing or poor housing or, or lower middle class housing, he found horrendous levels of bacteria. And at the same time, uh, industry was going, we need healthy workers, what's going on? So his research was prompted by the need to produce healthy workers for the Industrial Revolution. And given the data that he found, he recommended ventilation changes within public housing or poor housing to reduce bacteria levels to at least some reasonable number. Not that 20,000 is really reasonable, but to bring it down to that level that he felt that the level of consumption and, and TB and other diseases was not related to unsanitary conditions in the home. So that's why his, his number is so different uh, and so high compared to what's currently recommended today, which is around 500 colony-forming units per cubic meter as a maximum for bacteria. Now, in terms of schools, it's normal to find levels of somewhere between 200 and 500 in schools. But there, there was also another standard that was recommended by Carl Fugge in, in 1908, and he, he was another German pioneer, and he recommended a level of only 100 colony-forming units. And what's interesting about his work is he was looking at that time of you're taking housing and you're now using bleach as a disinfectant and you're keeping it clean and you have ventilation uh, systems that function. And he said, look, if we have all these controls within housing, we can normally expect bacteria levels to be around 100 colony-forming units per cubic meter. So in look, even though all of these older standards varied significantly, if you look at what is behind them, and what they were actually looking at, they all make sense. Um, and they were appropriate for what their intent was. I see. That explains it for me, and I appreciate that. We've got to watch the volume again a little bit. But So we went from, you know, less than 20,000 primarily to, you know, to get to some reasonable level, I guess. And then uh, others determined that once we had better sanitation, you could get it below 500, and in fact, sometimes less than 100. There was also another really interesting story in the book. I don't want to spend all morning on, well, we're going to spend the first half, obviously, on history, and then the second half, we'll, we'll move forward a little bit. Um, but the other story I really wanted to get you to relate to our listeners was about the fire that started in the Mir space station, and, and why there were problems with fire and electrical wiring and seals for airlocks. What what happened there, Bob? Well, many years ago, there was a story, or actually a movie, called The Andromeda Strain. And I, hopefully some of our older listeners will remember that movie. And in that movie, the seals within the P4 facility, which is a level of containment for highly infectious agents, the microbial agent from outer space ate the seals and escaped into the environment. Um, fortunately, in the, in the end of the movie, it mutated and it didn't kill all the people. But what's interesting about Mir, and, and it's, it's not a well-publicized fact, was along with the people that came up there came mold and bacteria. 
and the radiation levels in outer space are significantly higher than they are on the planet, and consequently those species mutated, and they started growing on the seals and the electrical wiring insulation, and some of them even started glowing on the glass windows with the mirror station. And they didn't realize this was going on until they had this fire where the the mold actually ate away at the seals within the oxygen system, and consequently the oxygen level um, skyrocketed and a small electrical system started a fire. Uh, after that, and, and they figured out that the seals had failed, um, and a, a, um, an American astronaut went up there who had some microbiology training, and he did some... Uh, culturable settling plates within mirror. And as most of us know, a culturable settling plate takes three to five days to grow sufficiently to identify uh, both the cultures, uh, species, and the number of colonies. Well, the next morning he woke up and the plate was overgrown. So what was up there was not nice. Uh, it grew very quickly. Uh, fortunately, it was not infectious, or at least the immunity systems within the astronauts were sufficient, so it did not affect them in, uh, from an infective point of view. But they were really, really concerned about what was on Mir, because if those same species came back down to the planet and grew at 10 or 100 times their normal rate, um, and particularly if it was a wood fungus or something like that, um, it would destroy all of our plastic seals. It would destroy a lot of uh, rotten or, or lumber very quickly. So we could not have those species come back to our planet. They potentially had some very serious environmental effects. So mirror decision was made to uh, let it burn up, and that was a very wise decision. Smart move. Huh? Now, on, the, <laughs> on the International Space Station, they have redesigned it um, so that uh, it's not as much of a problem. They have a, a one-inch airspace around the whole perimeter of the ISS that's under constant airflow, so water can't condense there, and mold and bacteria species don't grow on the perimeter of, of the station and, and aren't allowed to mutate and, and reproduce as readily as they were on here. Okay, before Interesting we... Interesting yeah, it, it really is, and before we go to halftime, I want to make sure, Gail, was there anything you wanted to add on the historical perspective? Mm, I think Bob covered it pretty well, actually. Okay, great. Thank you. Gail, you want to talk about the laboratory walk-in hoods? Because um, Joe had asked about that. Mm, I, I don't think I have anything to add on that. Okay. Uh, good. Let's go to halftime. First, we're going to thank our sponsors. Then we're going to bring Dr. Dieter on. Before we do, though, um, I noticed that um, Don Weeks is online, and, and uh, I had just wanted to quickly mention they're going to have the fourth uh, discussion about a week away from now here on Wednesday, May 12th, of the uh, AIHA's Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold book. Uh, Don and uh, J. David Miller, two of the editors, were you know, kind enough to join us on some previous shows, so I wanted to make sure we mentioned that, and you can register for that at the AIHA Marketplace. But uh, let's go to our, thank our ads, and uh, let's go then with Dr. Dieter. 
the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Hello, Dr. Dietrich Wilder. We have you on the line. That was my cue. <laughs> How are you, Dieter? Any, any, any quick comments on the historical? I know this next, oh, this, I, this next know, section's your big one. I know. I, I think we need. I think we need an, <laughs> to schedule another hour with Bob. Well, you read my mind, and actually, you Bob know and I that I like that. history of whatever, and from Benjamin Franklin to whatever. And you know my messy office, and I have a book over here with old chemical analyses for um, air contaminants. I think it's 1934, actually before I was born. Doesn't uh, doesn't matter. Um, I know we're going to go into standards a little bit later, but uh, here are a couple of comments, technical comments, I don't know how good the microscopes were in 1870, and it may very well be the case that in those days, uh, the microscopes were of such quality that you couldn't really resolve to look at bacteria. And this is the end of a light microscope of about one micrometers or thereabouts, maybe two micrometers. Then... I think in the early 1900s, Mr. Zeiss came in and um, uh, uh, perfected uh, or or improved upon the uh, 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 optical properties of a microscope. So I I put a big question mark uh, around that. Uh, the other, the other thing is, and I think we're going to get into that later on. Maybe go into the standards, and everybody has standards uh, uh, for this and that and the other. And um, maybe I, I wait with my comments after we go through the second half hour over here. And by the way, uh, 
Andy, Andy, my good friend Andy is on a roll. He won two times in a row. <laughs> He's twi- two, two for two. Yes, he is. All right, David, well, we'll bring you back. because apparently, I... apparently, exposure to lead doesn't numb his brain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I keep a couple of other... Uh, you know, I was in the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union, when... At the time, and everybody called it uh, uh, Russia, which it wasn't. It was the Soviet Union, and I was there. And they had—I think—they had a president by the name of Shomenkov. I think he lasted for one year and died of old age, something like that. And no, I don't speak Russian, and I can't speak, uh, uh, read the Russian. Uh, but I have people who know the Russian TLV list, MAK list, threshold limit values allowable concentrations and so on. But I wait with that comment until uh, the end of the show here. Okay. Let's bring Bob and Gail back, and then uh, we'll bring you back in from time to time, Dieter. And and I definitely agree. We're going to have to do a second show. We're never going to get through all these questions. But the second chapter, I believe it's the second chapter of the book, but the second section that I I wanted to – quickly talk about Bob and Gail is is the types of IAQ standards and, and you have them broken down into three types. You have outdoor air quality standards used as IAQ standards. You have occupational exposure limits used as IAQ standards. And then you have risk assessment calculations used as IAQ standards. Um, let's start with the first one and then work our way through and talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons and and you know what you mean by for instance using outdoor air quality standards to assist with developing indoor air quality standards okay you want me to comment on that one if you would please let's start with that one bob how do we do that well uh, i think you have to turn the clock back to around um, 1970 and and just prior to that uh, with the incidents and Sonora, Pennsylvania, and uh, the incidents in London with the London fog, where we realized that uh, outdoor air quality could have an impact on people and actually kill them. Um, Well-documented studies from back then. So the U.S. EPA uh, undertook some fairly extensive air quality studies uh, throughout the United States and looked at uh, the concentrations of approximately five different uh, chemicals, particulate matter, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, um, sulfur dioxide, uh, VOCs, nitrogen oxide, and ozone. And they looked at the concentrations of those chemicals and compared those to uh, health records, hospital admission records, mortality records, and was able to drive outdoor air quality contaminant relationships to morbidity and mortality within the population, which is basically what's the relationship between people getting sick and dying in relation to relation to chemicals in the outside air. So we, we, we developed these outdoor air quality standards based upon what was killing and making people sick, but those particular standards made the assumption that the people were being exposed to those chemicals 24 hours a day all of your lifetime, both indoors and outdoors. And we know today uh, that 
people spend the majority of their time indoors. And we also know that for those five indicator in outdoor air quality parameters, that in general, the indoor air concentration is less than the outdoor air concentration. But when we did those epidemiological models, we did not assume that the indoor air concentration was less than the outdoor air concentration. We assumed they were the same. Now, had we assumed the indoor air concentration was less, we could have set an outdoor air standard higher. But we didn't. They made, that, they made a conservative assumption that the two were equivalent. So what that essentially says is this epidemiological and health data, those standards are applicable indoors because we made that assumption early on. And at the same time, it's simply protective because it was a conservative assumption in the initial study. So we can take those outdoor air quality standards and apply them indoors. And in fact, globally, all the countries that have indoor air quality standards use the outdoor air quality standards as the primary reference and standard for their, their initial five indoor air quality standards. So it, it's a common practice. We haven't, unfortunately, done it in this country, but virtually all the other ones have. So that's where the, the historic and research basis comes from for the outdoor air quality standards as applied to indoors. And from what I gather in, in the way you explained it, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we have pretty good epidemiological data that indicates these are, you know, these are pretty, pretty good indicators of air quality in general, whether it's indoor or out. In some ways, they're a lot more useful than occupational limits since those are set for an eight-hour time period, not a 24-hour time period. Okay. But even though we have probably more standards for occupational setting, they really don't seem quite as applicable to IAQ as the air quality, outdoor air quality standards are. So that's one of their benefits over the occupational limits. Well, let's yeah. talk. The other thing about outdoor air quality standards is they took into account the sensitive portion of the population. They were designed to be protected of the whole population, not just healthy workers. So from a, an air quality point of view, there's some of the best researched and studied exposure standards of anything we have out there. And those are listed as well in the book, obviously, and um, I've got them actually here on page 15 for um, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. So uh, if anybody wants those, just let us know or buy the book. Uh, but we also, I'm sure most people can pick those up. But let's go to the next category. This is occupational exposure limits and, and how people over the years have used occupational exposure limits to help establish indoor air quality standards. Can you give us a little summary on how people do that, Bob? Yeah, you... In order to understand this uh, particular issue, you need to go back to uh, the mid-70s when we had this uh, so-called energy crisis in the United States, and there was significant interest by building owners to reduce their energy bills. So they posed a question to NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and said, what can we do in terms of energy conservation and reduced ventilation and what standards would you recommend that we apply from an indoor air quality point of view? And way back then, NIOSH said, well, let's, let's uh, try one-tenth of an occupational exposure limit. 
and that that recommendation from NIOSH uh, circulated for about two years, and uh, it didn't work. Uh, people were getting sick by applying one tenth of a, an OEL to indoor air quality. Uh, subsequent to that, there was um, some modeling done um, by various people, and that's shown in the book. And they they suggested one fortieth of a, an occupational exposure limit. And some people calculated it should be one one hundredth of an occupational exposure limit. And when you, and what's interesting is when you apply that ratio of uh, an occupational exposure limit to the national air quality standards for the five different regulated substances, you find that the ratio is somewhere in the ratio of one fifty fifth all the way up to one eighty eight. So the recommendation of using an one one hundredth or one fortieth of an occupational exposure limit somewhat is in agreement with what we found from the outdoor air quality research. So if we look at what's recommended internationally uh, by various countries, most of them had have adopted one one hundredth of an occupational exposure limit for assessing indoor air quality. Um, and that's what the book recommends. It's it's uh, it's conservative because when you look at all of the outdoor air quality standards, the most restrictive one is one 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 eighty eighth of an of an occupational exposure limit. So if you take one one hundredth, uh, you're doing a fairly good conservative assumption. And also, if you look at the number of chemicals you're exposed to in the indoor environment today. Uh, it could be easily 50 to 100 different chemicals if you were to, to go into that detail. Uh, so that, again, might be uh, in line with what we're looking at. Yeah, I noticed the um, – I'm looking at Table 4 now, which is the ratio of the national ambient air quality standards to the occupational exposure limit standards. And actually the the one that had the highest ratio was for particulate Um the national ambient air quality standard was 60 micrograms per cubic meter, and the occupational exposure limit was 5,000, and that was 1 to 83. Is that the one we were talking about, Bob, is the worst one? Yes, it is. Okay. So, and, and then you go down the list, and you go through carbon monoxide, ozone, nitrogen dioxide, and sulfur dioxide. Very interesting table, and um, you did a great job of explaining how that 1 one-hundredth of the occupational exposure limits appears to be something that's uh, backed up by looking at the outdoor air quality standards. Now, let's go and describe for the listeners how you do risk assessment calculations to establish indoor air quality standards, and then I think we'll open it up for the roundtable because we'll be right at about uh, five minutes, two, and then obviously we're going to have to bring you back, Bob. <laughs> oh, it'll be fun to come back, Joe. I always enjoy being I always enjoy being on your show. Thank you. Um, so the last set of standards deal with risk assessment, and the history on that goes back to 1990, um, subsequent to the, the Bhopal in India chemical release. And the question was raised from a regulatory viewpoint in terms of what if we're releasing carcinogens or, or other highly toxic chemicals, we can't make an absolute assumption of zero risk to the population if we expose people to these chemicals. And since we use these chemicals in, com in commerce and for our products, we have to come up with some way of 
doing some kind of risk assessment relative to exposure to these highly toxic chemicals. So what happened uh, at the same time is the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on the benzene occupational exposure standard. And the Supreme Court said that a risk of one in a million is an insignificant risk. And that was a very, very critical decision by the Supreme Court because that one in a million risk assessment became virtually the standard for all regulatory agencies for assessing chemical exposure, whether it's, it's food or it's outdoor air quality exposure or it's chemical use in an occupational setting or dealing with carcinogens, that number or that risk of one in a million has become the standard. So subsequently, the states issued a number of risk assessment standards for various chemicals, mostly carcinogens, and those are the third class of acceptable concentrations um, with a one in a million risk for a 24-hour day exposure for a 70-year lifetime for an average person that weighs roughly uh, 70 kilograms. So we have all of these risk assessment standards that if you're exposed uh, for an individual chemical, your, your risk at that exposure level is one in a million. Now what's unique about these is these are cumulative risks. So if you're exposed to 10 different carcinogens, you still have to make sure that the cumulative risk is less than one in a million. So consequently, if all of them are at the standard you, of one in a million, you have to reduce the concentration by a factor of 10 to get that risk, overall risk, to less than one in a million. So these aren't specific numbers. They're adjustable numbers based upon the cumulative chemical exposure. So, so they're, they're very interesting. Uh, they're a lot more complex to apply. But they're for real, and, and they're for real numbers that you can use to make a judgment on the risk of an indoor air quality uh, situation. And we do that. When we do assessments, we, uh, we will basically come out and say within the report that your risk of occupation, you're just your risk of cancer um, in this particular environment from these chemicals is uh, two in a million or one in 50,000. Some of them have come up that high. Uh, based upon using these risk assessment numbers for evaluating indoor air quality. Okay. Gil, anything you wanted to add on that one before we bring Dr. Dietrich Wild back on and uh, talk to him? Well, I, I do want to reiterate the fact that, that this information is a real treasure trove of information because in so many cases, people in indoor air quality problems want to know what what am I responding to uh, what's in the environment, and is it okay? And these are very, very difficult questions to answer. And uh, this information does uh, make it easier for the indoor air quality consultant to work with the occupants, work with the physicians involved, and really try and get some answers for people. And I really hope that people take advantage of uh, the information that's out there. Yeah, uh, yeah let me make one other comment here. Jim. Please do um, there was a legal case in Atlanta last year where the use of these standards uh, was challenged under Dulbert, and the court upheld the use of standards from other countries when the United States doesn't have any. Hmm. So there is a legal precedent for using these standards already. 
Let me just do a quick overview of what we've covered. Then we're going to have a little discussion of it. And then I'd also like to give listeners a little uh, teaser on where we're going on the next show. We've only covered the first two chapters, essentially, the history of indoor air quality and the types of indoor air quality standards. The, the third chapter in the book is actually countries with indoor air quality standards, and there's quite an interesting list of countries that have indoor air quality standards. After that, we'll talk more about governmental bodies that have indoor air quality standards, which again is a, an interesting list. And then there are actually state-by-state uh, indoor air quality risk assessment standards listed in the book. Then we go into some trade organization standards, some that I think all our listeners would be fairly familiar with, the ASHRAE 62.1 ventilation and the Green Building Council, the USGBC's uh, standards on energy and environmental design, and then the uh, Bob Biologists in the German Building Bo uh, Group. So that's an interesting chapter. Then we go into Chapter 7, which is risk-based indoor air quality standards. So we go into some things like the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry, uh, the California Office of Environmental Health and Hazard Assessment, which I think, uh, well, actually California's Prop 65 is covered in there, so we'll talk about that more. And then also some specific indoor air quality standards, and I, I'm really dying to get to a couple of questions on asbestos from that section. But I think most <laughs> importantly is this all leads up to this wonderful appendix, or I guess it's the table, Table A at the end of the book. And Table A goes on for, oh, I'm guessing 100 pages or more. How many chemicals are listed in Table A here, Bob, with a long-term health risk, a U.S. EPA, RFC, and the cancer risk, and then the Prop 65 risk, and then what you call the WOE in the last column here so that people can look at what is the long-term health risk? What is the U.S. EPA's um, RFC, what is the cancer risk, and then what is the Prop 65 reproductive risk, and then what is the weight of the evidence. So very fascinating, and, and I think a great reference and something that we've talked about in the past. How do you figure, you know, you get this list of chemicals, and how the heck do you figure out what they mean? And I think you've done a great job of uh, putting a reference together that will help people answer that question. Did I capture it Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. In in that table, there is roughly um, twenty four hundred different chemicals. Wow. Now, what's unique is when you look at a chemical, you have to look at it in a number of different ways. Certainly, one is the long term health risk. Can it affect your your lungs, or can it affect your kidneys, or your heart, or or whatever? And then you also have to look at it. Can it cause cancer? And then a the third thing you need to look at is can it cause a reproductive risk? What if it's teratogenic or mutagenic? So when you look at a chemical, there's, there's th three major health effects, and you have to assess um, each one of those when doing some kind of risk assessment or, uh, of an indoor environment. Now, the last column, as you pointed out, where we have uh, WOE is the weight of evidence, and that, that looks at how many agencies, countries, trade organizations, or whatever have set a standard for that particular chemical um, and in a lot of cases it's four or five or 20 or even up to 30 different people have looked at this chemical and come up with 
uh, a, a standard. But they don't always agree. Each each country has its own toxicological way of looking at stuff. It has their own experts. So there is some variance within in the individual standards. And we, we try to deal with that from a statistical viewpoint where we go, okay, here's all the standards by everybody. Here's the average of all those standards. And also here is the median, which is the 50% level. What If we look at all of this knowledge, what is the number that 50% of the people came up with? So we, we try and help people to say, okay, there's a whole breadth of knowledge, but if I'm going to make a a guess or a conservative estimate looking at all of the information globally, this is the number I would choose to evaluate because this is what most of the people think is the appropriate standard. So so we do that statistical analysis for people. And then there's one last little num- table we have in there, which is the US EPA RFC, which is RFC stands for reference concentration, and that goes to a concentration that's used in hazardous waste cleanups. The significance of that number is it may have justification for legal recourse in that that standard has been used by EPA to sue people for um, hazardous waste site cleanups because people are being exposed to that number. So if you go into an indoor air quality situation where you're dealing with soil gases and you find a concentration that is above the RFC, this could potentially be successful litigation from a hazardous waste cleanup point of view. So we we give people all kinds of health numbers and we also give them a little bit of uh, legal help if that may be of interest in that particular case. Great. But we'll go into but there's lots of good information. There really is, and we'll go into more detail on the next show. Real quick, Bob, I have a text question from Guest 10. Um, what is the difference between a TLV and a standard? Are TLVs standards? A threshold limit value set by the American Conference of Industrial Governmental Industrial Hygienists is not technically a legally enforceable standard within this country. Uh, there is also a somewhat controversial history behind threshold limit values, and if you go to the um, Santa Clara County, right, Santa Clara County for Occupational Safety and Health website, uh, there's a very interesting discussion on the toxicological derivation uh, and history of the TLVs. So when we're talking standards here, we're talking actual standards from other countries where they go, if you're above this number, you cannot rate yourself as good air, indoor air quality, and you should do something to, to fix it. Um, so, yeah, there's a difference between guidelines and standards and trade association recommendations, uh, and, and we look at all of those. All right. Well, thank you, Bob. And let's get Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dr. Dieter, Dieter, are you back with us? I certainly am, no okay. question about uh, it. Let's get a real and quick I, give and take between you and Bob here. We've got about, Bob, do you have another five minutes with us? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, oh, yeah, uh, we, we need another hour to go through <laughs> uh, all of it. No Bob, doubt in my mind. We Bob will. Has an interesting answer to Dieter's earlier question about the bacteria back in the 80s. Shoot. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned the issue of microscopy. Um, right. But what's interesting is if you've ever done settled plates, uh, it's an optical. You you just uh, look at it from yep, right, the eye point. Right, right. I, I understand that, yes. Yeah. But 
historically, they used a device called a HES tube. Uh, yes. We have a picture of that in... Uh, I know that. I know what it looks like. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a two-foot-long glass tube. That's great hair. Yes. And, uh, you know, so the, the bacteria played it out in one area, the mold played it out in another area, yep. and the particulates uh, came out in the other area. And, and they were basically counting the colonies on the HES tube, uh, or at least estimating because 20,000 colonies is a lot of colonies <laughs> yeah uh, and it was it was uh, all visual it, the, the microscopy at that point was not being used uh, at the turn of the century to define or well it was used I used it in the 60s and early 70s okay uh, um, yeah, there were no black boxes. We didn't know what a computer was. We didn't know what an electronic calculator was. Right, right. But anyway, uh, you mentioned it over there with the, the threshold limit values as uh, published by the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. And for that matter, the German Commission, uh, they, they published the MAK, Maximum Allowable Concentration uh, uh, things and I I like those two books and why do I like it? They don't give me a number. They have a documentation with it. Said we set that limit because we saw this and this and this and this. Toxicological data show that. Um, uh, industrial experience tells us this and this and this. And uh, yes, absolutely, indeed, I use that even for indoor air, the first thing I do is I divide by 10. That's the first thing I do. I mean, I, I'm well aware of that. And then when I think further, maybe I should divide by 50. And apparently you have a rule of thumb, divide by 100. You're certainly uh, 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 fine there. But I like when I look at a an exposure limit, and I don't yeah, care where it comes from, I like to look at the documentation. When I was in the Soviet Union, they told me, oh, our, our uh, allowable concentrations are better than yours. I said, why? I said, well, we took yours and we di divided them all by 10. <laughs> that is not a good idea. You know, I, I want to see research and experience and toxicology and whatever else it needs to make up that one little number over there. Uh, which is used in court <laughs> in other places. Anyway, I'm glad to see that the, uh, the United States Supreme Court got a little bit ahead of the old Bellini Clause where it was said that nothing in this country, in this country, nothing in this country should contain one molecule of a carcinogen. <laughs> Uh, at least the uh, Supreme Court said, you know, one in a million is kind of all right. But again, I, 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 I gladly, I mean, I can't wait for the next show, and uh, there's a lot more to say than what I said right now and what Bob and Gail said. So let's keep going. All right, Dieter. Well, thank you. Bob, before we go, um, obviously, is there anything that we've, up to this point, that we missed, and Gail as well, uh, that you'd like to add before we go, and obviously we'll be bringing you back, but um, let's let's at least give you a final word. Well, um, if you're interested in the book, uh, you can go to our website, which is oehcs.com. 
and, and all the first chapters with all this historic information, uh, you can download them or read them directly on, on the website. And uh, if you're a history buff, uh, plan to spend hours because it's a lot of great reading. So, again, if you're interested, uh, OEHCS.com, and you can find uh, all this information there. Great. Gail? Uh, thanks for having us on. All right. Well, I, I really had fun with this, and uh, I got the book a little late, but I got it. I got most of it done. I will have it completely done for the next show. And uh, we really appreciate having you on here this week. I've got people scheduled until the end of the month, but uh, let's see if we can't get something together for June to bring you back. Sounds great. Sounds great, Joe. All right. Thanks again to Dr. Bob Brandis and his lovely wife, Gail, for joining us here today on IAQ Radio. Also want to make sure we thank uh, Environmental Annie Koalecki for handling the controls there our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, And I uh, also want to mention that uh, next week we've got Dr. Claudius Carnegie on the show. Dr. Carnegie is the uh, new Indoor Environmental Standards Organization president, and he's also uh, in charge of, I believe it's facilities, but he's got a director-type title down there for the Miami-Dade County Public School District. He's also a professional engineer looking forward to a great discussion with Dr. Carnegie next week. So please come back and join us for that one. Most importantly, I want to make sure I thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 